Please turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 19. We are continuing on. We're going to finish chapter 19 this morning. That's my plan. We'll be looking at specifically verses 16 through 30 in Judges 19. The title of the sermon, we're continuing on with um, the guilt of Benjamin. The guilt of Benjamin. This is part three in the final part of the guilt of Benjamin. Preparing this message, I was reminded of something that one of my Old Testament uh, theology professors said um, years ago about accounts like this in the Bible. If it's weird, it's important, is what he said. Well, this is certainly a weird one. I would add to this professor's thoughts that, that I think the harder it is to understand Bible, a Bible passage that the deeper and many layered are its meanings. And that's sometimes why we struggle with it. So I want to do a, a short recap of what we've seen, what we've heard, what we've read so far, because it's important for us to understand this in the, in the end of this part of the account. There, it will, this, the ramifications of what we read about today continue on to the end of the book of Judges, two more chapters after this. So we read about the Levite who retrieved his concubine from her father's home in Bethlehem and how he's convinced, the Levite is convinced by his father-in-law to stay beyond the customary three days of the visit. He finally departs late on the fifth day, refusing his father-in-law's invitation for a sixth night's stay. And clues in the text, I would say, hint that this prolonged stay was necessary to, number one, convince the young concubine, the Nahara, who had fled back to her father's house, to convince her to accompany her, accompany her husband back home to the remote hills of Ephraim. But the visit was not long enough for the Levite to speak kindly to her or to speak to her heart, as the Hebrew says literally. We read at the beginning of this in verse 3 of chapter 19. That was his motive for going after her, to speak to her heart. Well, we never see that happen. Perhaps causing this invitation on, or late on the fifth day, where the man and his concubine and his servants, they rose up to depart, we read in verse 9, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall rise early in the morning for your journey and go home. Now contained in here in verse 9, we have the fifth heart reference within six verses. This, this is pointing something. The writer is pointing to something here. And it impacts the story as we go on. And it's, and it's ominous what, what it's pointing to. So because of their late departure, the Levite, his concubine, his manservant with their two donkeys, they cannot make it home. They cannot get 
to the far side of the hills of Ephraim. They must spend the night somewhere. The manservant implores his master to turn in to Jebus, what will later be Jerusalem. But the Levite refuses to do so. He won't spend the night in a foreign city. He makes the decision to go on to Gibeah or Raman, even beyond that, going as far as he can towards getting home. But the sun makes this decision for, for them. The sun goes down. And they must spend the night in Gibeah of Benjamin. And they receive no hospitality from the Benjaminites, the men of the tribe of Benjamin who inhabit this city. It's within the, the, the territorial allotment given by Yahweh to the tribe of Benjamin. We read in verse 15, they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. This sets the stage for what is the return of Sodom. Verse 15 implies that that no one met the Levites' party as they entered the village. This this harkens back to the story in Genesis of of Sodom and Gomorrah. We read in Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 and 3. The two angels, remember they were sent by God to investigate what was going on. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So a town square, as I've said before, is not the place to spend the night. And unlike the two angels who who entered into Sodom, the Levite did not want to spend the night in the square. But the two angels, they wanted to do that because they were there to test the men of Sodom. But Lot offered his home to them, and he, and he pressed them so strongly that finally they gave in. He wouldn't take no for an answer. And it turns out they didn't need to be in the open square to test the men of Sodom. The men of Sodom sought them out. So Sodom, along with Gomorrah, its sister city, were among what are called the cities of the plains. These are five Canaanite cities. Um, now, there's there's been... Uh, different opinions as to where these cities were because uh, we don't know exactly. We don't have, they, they don't stand to this day. They were destroyed. Um, I would say best archaeological, most recent archaeological evidence points towards, it, towards them being northeast of the Dead Sea at the entrance to the, the, the valley of the Jordan River. Um, that fits with how uh, Genesis describes Abraham and Lot going to this place and Lot choosing this area that was like the Garden of Eden. So this is where it's going on. It's a Canaanite. They're Canaanite cities. These are pagan cities. In contrast with Gibeah, a city of Israel, a territory within the the land allotment to the tribe of Benjamin, a place where Yahweh is to be king, where Yahweh is to be worshipped, where Yahweh is their one true God. And this Gibeah of Benjamin is the future birthplace of Saul, the first king of Israel. And Saul will make this city the seat of his monarchy. It will be known later as Gibeah of Saul. 
However, now, Gibeah of Benjamin becomes like Sodom, resurrected from the ashes of its destruction. Let's turn to Judges 19, and I'm going to read verses 16 through 21. Follow along, please. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going, and where do you come from? And he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to the house of the Lord. Now the story doesn't mention anything about him going to the house of the Lord, um, which is not in the hill country of Ephraim at this time. The Greek translation, this is the Hebrew text, the Masoretic text says this. The Greek translation of that says he's going to my house. He's going to his house. So just to clear up any confusion there. Going on in the text, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed. And they washed their feet and ate and drank. So we have a new character in the story that's introduced here. But he, like everyone else, remains anonymous. We never know his name. He's described as only an old man. He could be any old man. And in the Hebrew, literally, it means him with a pointed beard, which you can see what classification that puts me and some of you brothers uh, into. (laughs) And like the Levite, he is a sojourner, not a Benjamite. Not a native-born son of Gebeah. He has further affinity with the Levite in that. This is what they have in common. That he's all, and he is also from the hill country of Ephraim. And as he trudges home, laboring in the field, he's an old man, and he's working in the field. Doesn't say my, his field. He's working in the field. Sounds like he's a, he's a hired laborer. So he's walking home not really seeing anything. He knows the way. He's just eyes cast downward, putting one foot in front of the other. We all, we all know that feeling. And look, he looks up. Something draws his attention. He sees these travelers in the open square. The, the writer uh, of Judges says, literally, he saw the man. From what follows, we know that, of course, the concubine is present, isn't she? Again, we see that she's seemingly invisible. What the old man sees is unusual, though. He's curious. He asks, where are you going? Where are you from? And the Levite answers his questions. And and after answering them, he complains. He complains to the old man that no one in Gibeah will, will offer lodging for the night. And then he expands on the seriousness of this lack of hospitality, of this social dysfunction that's going on. He explains that he and his party are only asking for a bed, a place to lay their heads, because they have their own food, they have their own wine, they have their own fodder for the donkeys. They need nothing else. They're not expecting an evening meal from anyone. Ironically, 
recall that the Levite had refused to turn into the Canaanite city of Jebus, knowing there would be no welcome there. But now they are rebuffed by their own countrymen, who offer them no hospitality. So what we're seeing here, this is a breakdown in the social order in, in Israel. And we don't see this. It's, it's hard for us to see because this doesn't sound unreasonable to us. It's not customary for us modern Westerners to invite strangers that are out in public into our homes to spend the night. But this was the custom uh, at the time, as we've, as we've talked about before. And in ancient Israel, this disregard of the tradition of hospitality really is monumental. I, I can't emphasize that enough, even though we don't understand it. This is a big deal. The standards of the Israelites have been infected at the most fundamental level, really, in how they interact with one one another. The people of one tribe, the tribe of Benjamin here, sense no obligation to members of other tribes, Ephraim, Levi, and Judah, which are in this traveling group. There's only one who will help them, and that is another fellow from the tribe of Ephraim. He's a sojourner, someone who is temporarily living with permission in Gabeah. So there's no sense of community. There's no cohesiveness. There's no unity amongst the Israelites during the time of the judges. It's one of the things that we see as a theme here. Because why? Every man was doing what was right in his own eyes. This idea of hospitality, though, goes beyond politeness or etiquette. That's what we think of, right? That our idea of hospitality is make sure your guests are offered something to, to drink, that if you're feeding them food, you have you know, all the proper things to, to have the meal. That's hospitality. But it goes beyond that, and I, and I want us to understand that. Otherwise, it becomes a trivial matter, which, which it is not. Hospitality is really undergirded by the second table of the law, the fifth through the tenth commandments that deal with our relationships with each other, with other people. And if people do not keep the first table of the law, that's the first through the fourth commandments that deal with our relationship with the Lord God, then we cannot possibly keep the second table of the law. We do not deal with each other in a proper fashion then. The law is inexorably joined together. We need to see that. And our Lord Jesus, he made this clear when asked by an expert in the religious law. Matthew records it in chapter 22 of his gospel. And this young lawyer, as he's described, asks Jesus, What is the great commandment in the law? Now this young man, this young lawyer, he knew this. This is another trap by the religious leaders. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the laws and prophets. So law-breaking is the repeated pattern of the book of Judges. And this is what's behind this idea of hospitality, is breaking of the law, breaking of the law that God revealed to Moses. 
And not only is law breaking the repeated pattern in Judges, it is in the Old Testament, isn't it? And not only just the Old Testament, it's the theme throughout the Bible, right? Law breaking, because we, each and every one of us, we are lawbreakers. Natural man, that is us in our sinful state, or the original sin, which is inherited from the fall, we do not have the ability to abide by the moral law of God. Yeah, of course, one might obey for a time, for, for, for a season, through willpower and through determination and grit, but it doesn't last long, does it, if, you, if you've tried this on your own. It's like trying to stick to a diet or you know, something that we want to do. Well, I know that's good for me. I need to do it, but you know, I'll, I'll do it tomorrow. That, that sort of, it's, it's along that way of thinking. As we read the Bible story, we may think that the law doesn't work, right? Because everything we see in it, everyone who's, who's, whose life story is, is, un, is revealed to us, they all are breaking the law. No one keeps this perfect law perfectly. And we wonder, why can't we save ourselves by perfect obedience, which God is calling his people to? And that's exactly what we're supposed to wonder. God wants us to see this. God reveals to us our predicament through his word. We are supposed to realize we cannot do this very thing we are commanded to do, keep the law and keep it perfectly. And upon this realization of this, there's only one place we can turn to, isn't there? It is to God himself and the means of righteousness that he freely gives to us through God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the only way to keep the law. This is the only, and we, we will still break it. Don't worry if you're like, I'm, I, I know I'm a Christian, but I, I, I broke the law. I did the, yes, as did I, brothers and sisters, as did each of us. Jesus Christ is who, whom the scripture points to. No matter where we turn in the scriptures, it is pointing to Jesus. The Old Testament is pointing forward to him. The New Testament points to him and back to him and our life with him in the future. He alone is the remedy for the wrongs, the sins, the transgressions, the evil, the horrors, the crimes that we individually and together commit to each, on, upon each other and against the Lord. This brings me to my first point that I'd like to make. Point number one. It is right for us to be grieved over sin. It is right for us to be grieved over sin. This is our proper response. Sorrow and grieving. This is how we should respond to sin. This is a sign of the transformed heart that is brought by Christ's salvation. Without this realization that sin is a cause for us to grieve, there can be no real repentance, which is turning away from sin. Not just once. We don't turn away once from sin. We have to turn away continually. And we do not do this through our own power. Just like keeping the law, we cannot do it by our own power. It is from God alone that we are given 
the means and the grace to be able to repent, to even realize that we are sinners. So too often, modern Christians, especially American Christians, view salvation as completely and totally personal. Failing to see how God's word teaches us that we are part of a body, the church, the church locally, and the church universal, church little c, church big c, church universal throughout the ages and into the future, and us, you know, the saints here in Ontario at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. This, this manifests in the idea that each believer has a personal relationship with Jesus that is separate and apart from, from anyone else. It's the mindset of, um, it's just me, Jesus, and my Bible. I don't need anyone else. And there are people that profess that. They're, they're missing something in the gospel here. With this, with this view, I, I would say there, there can be no grievance for the sins of others, for the sins of the world at large. Because as, the, as this person would say, that doesn't affect me. I'm saved. I'm saved. That's, that's all that matters to me, my salvation. I don't care what other people do. I don't care what other people believe. They view sin and salvation as strictly personal issues. Well, yes, there's truth in that, of course. When we are first saved, when we think back to when Christ brought you to salvation, you, you, you must view sin Personally, we, we are confronted when, when God transforms us by our own sinful state, and we must recognize this. Otherwise, we do not turn from our sin. We do not come to Christ. There is, no, there is no reason to unless we recognize our own personal sin. And at this stage, initially, in our salvation, yes, sin is strictly personal. This is how God works. We are confronted with breaking the first table of the law and our sins against him. Then we recognize the breaking of the second temple of the law, our sins against others. And this may happen at different intervals, different, different speeds, different times for each of us individually. It's not going to be the same. Some people will seem to be simultaneous. Some will be, man, it took me a while to get that. And that's, that's okay, brethren. It, we're not, God didn't make us cookie-cutter cutouts of one another. We're, we are individuals. We're, we're different. We must recognize that. And then eventually, along this path, we're moved to repentance, justified in faith. We're saved. God begins the process of what we call sanctification in our life. So lifelong process. We often refer to that as maturing in the faith. This should happen to every true Christian. There must be sanctification. There must be a maturation of the faith. We don't stay, as Paul says, as baby Christians, just feeding on the milk of the word. We must be able to chew on its meat. We must be able to to take the bony part of it and work the meat off that bone, as a good friend of mine often says. And in this process, the Christian will be brought to grief and sorrow, not just by his or her own sins, but by the sins of others. Not necessarily because he or she is personally hurt by other sins. No, 
it, because of the Lord's love given to us, we are enabled to love him back and to love one another. This is what John teaches. This is what he writes to the church in his first epistle, 1 John 4, 10 through 12, explains that very well. And the same apostle, John, he tells us in his gospel, in chapter 11, verse 35, a very well-known verse because of trivia questions, actually, shortest verse in the Bible by word count, Jesus, or excuse, excuse me, John tells us that Jesus wept. He wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Why did Jesus weep? He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus knew this. This wasn't a spur of the moment thing where he's weeping and he's like, hey, you know what? I got an idea. No, this was the plan, the eternal plan. This is why John takes care in his gospel to explain to us that the Lord delayed his journey to Bethany where Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, lived. And John tells us that Lazarus and Mary and Martha were loved by our Lord. He's given news that your friend Lazarus is sick. Oh, okay. And he delays two days. And then he says, you know, time for us to go to Bethany. And his disciples are saying, well, either he's better or he's not. What's the point now? And Jesus says to him that he delayed so that you may believe. You, speaking to the disciples at the time, but also speaking to us. This is given to us so that we may believe. So Jesus knows what he's going to do. He knows Lazarus is dead. Yet Jesus weeps. He's going to call Lazarus out of the tomb, out of the darkness of the tomb, into the light of life with the Lord Jesus. Yet he's weeping. He weeps just as Joseph weeps over his brother's wickedness in the, in the account of Joseph in the book of Genesis, Genesis 42 24, just as the prophet Jeremiah tells us, the Lord God weeps over unfaithful Judah in Jeremiah 9, 1. The Lord Jesus weeps over the sin, our sin, which has brought pain and death to us all. He weeps out of compassion and also out of righteous anger for the sinful way that we have chosen to live, the the sinful way that our parents in the garden chose. So just as sin grieves the heart of our Lord, it should grieve our hearts. Now back to our text, Judges 19, verses 22 through 26. And as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let them, let me bring them out now. Violate them. Do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. 
But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. This is the resurrection of Sodom. This would have been scandalous beyond belief to an ancient Israelite to hear this account. Sure, this could happen in a pagan city like Sodom, but for such depravity to happen in an Israelite city is unthinkable to them. And in Genesis 18 and 20, excuse me, 18, chapter 18, verse 20, the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. He sends the angels. The men of Sodom then attack Lot's house in their effort to rape the two angelic visitors sent there to investigate. The prophet Ezekiel writes about this later. Ezekiel 16, chapter 16, verses 1, and then verses 49 and 50, I'm going to read to you. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. Now this has caused great misinterpretation amongst those who call themselves Christians. Some will take this verse and say, see, God's not against homosexuality. Look what Ezekiel says. It's about being nice to one another. It's about not, you know, hoarding your riches. You need to give your money to the poor and needy. It's about the social gospel. Don't you get it? And then they deny that the homosexuality of the sodomites and the, the desire to rape the angels, that, 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 well, maybe the violent part, but, but homosexuality, no, that's, God is not saying that. This is an improper interpretation and a misunderstanding of the nature of sin. It's a mishandling of the text. This is my second point, point number two. Sin does not exist in isolation. Sin does not exist in isolation. What do I mean by that? What Genesis and Ezekiel both reveal to us about Sodom is that people committed many types of sin. That's a problem with some biblical interpretation. People will go on to one idea and that's it. It's got to be that, it's nothing else. No, that's not what we see, is it? We've talked about the many layers, like peeling an onion in the Bible. You know, that there, there can be more than one meaning. There could be a surface meaning and there could be an underlying meaning. We see that time and time again. The nature of sin is that one sin leads to another. Sin exists amongst other sins, doesn't it? How many of us, when we think of our sins, could say, well, this was my one sin. I just had this sin and nothing else. No, none of us can honestly say that because we've committed many, many sins, each and every one of us, both in our actions and in our thoughts, in our hearts. 
Yes, pride and prosperity, yes, this invariably does lead to a rejection of God. This is what Ezekiel is talking about. Because he's talking to Judah, the the kingdom, the southern kingdom, which is going to face the judgment of the Lord God for their turning from him to sin to pagan gods. It wasn't just a matter that they weren't giving enough to charity. The rejection of God because of pride, because of prosperity, invariably leads to abominations against other people. Ezekiel uses the word abominations twice. Abominations is reserved in God's word for those sins that are exceedingly wicked in his sight. All sin is wicked, but there are some that he calls abominations. The act of these men in Sodom is and was described as an abomination. What happens in Gebeah of Benjamin by these worthless fellows is an abomination. So we have abominations against each other. Then when modern God-fearing nations have become secularized, then they at some point become God-denying nations. There's a progression in this sin which leads to totalitarian governments who enslave their people and commit mass murder. We only have to look into our not-so-distant past in the 20th century to see massive examples of this. Germany, Russia, Cambodia, China. It's very prevalent. Verse 22 of our text says, As they were making their hearts merry, there's there's heart language again, Behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. These worthless fellows, described as such in our translation, they're like the Sodomites uh, with Lot, right? But interestingly, the the Hebrew uh, for worthless fellows is really... uh, Bene Belial, or sons of Belial. Belial is described in the literature of Qumran, where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls, as the angel of wickedness. He's associated with Sheol and death, according to the Hebrew scriptures. In the New Testament, Bel is synonymous with Satan. These are sons of Satan, not just worthless fellows. That kind of makes it... I don't know. We don't see the depravity. They're just worthless. Oh, we, okay, what, they're, they're unemployed? They, they, they won't get a job? They're sponging off you know, mom and dad or, or, or what? No, they're sons of Satan. And they make the same demand as the Sodomites in Genesis 19 regarding this male guest that we may know him, Yuhad Yada. In a normal society, one with hospitality, one that recognizes the first and second table of the law, getting to know someone could mean establishing a friendly relationship with them. And that would be all well and good, but that's not what it means here. It's, a, it's, a, it's an ancient Jewish euphemism for the sexual, the sexual act, knowing someone in, in the carnal sense. What the writer is saying is they were demanding to have him as 
their object in a homosexual gang rape. And this demand represents a violation of three fundamental laws in Israel. The law of hospitality, number one. Number two, the prohibition on intercourse outside of marriage. And number three, the prohibition on homosexual intercourse. Now we see fully the the irony of the Levites' decision to travel on to Gibeah. He bypassed Jebus because he didn't trust the hospitality of foreigners. He entrusted himself to his fellow Israelites. He should be safe with them, right? In our sense, it would be like, you know, turning into a church. It's like, there's brothers and sisters there. I can trust them. And then being spurned, being turned away. He finds himself in a virtual Sodom. And he himself is a foreigner in Gibeah. They treat him as such, and he is the main object of their attack. In verse 23 and 24, the man, the master of the house, went out to, to, him, to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. And like Lot in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, this old man shows personal courage. He goes out and confronts the mob, just like Lot did. And as Lot did, he begs the men not to act so wickedly. Both Lot and this old man refer to the law of hospitality, which requires them, requires them to protect the guests under their roof. While Lot offers his virgin daughters to the mob in lieu of his two guests, this host, this man who is the model host, we could say, the only host, he turns out to be the one who conceives the idea of throwing the two women to the dogs. And this, this is deeply ironic, that he should volunteer the, the Levite's concubine as well as his own daughter is very surprising, to be sure. And the fact that his, his own daughter he describes as a virgin adds special poignancy to the horror of what happens here. This is the second time that we've seen in the book of Judges where a virgin daughter is sacrificed to a father's perverted sense of moral obligation. We saw this back in chapter 11 with, with Yephthah, the judge, and more young women, as this account goes on in the future, will fall victim here to similar abuse before we, the story is actually over. And now the inevitable question, like in the account of the original Sodom, is why are females offered up as victims in exchange for intended male victims? Well, rather than, than offer up conjecture in an attempt to explain this, let me say this. It was then and it is now categorically wrong. What happened? What was done was a grievous sin. And I'll make no defense of it. I cannot explain it away. We must not defend sin in others or in ourselves. This leads me to the third point. Point number three. Sin is not to be bargained with. Sin is not 
to be bargained with. Our response to sin or evil can never be the choice of a lesser sin or evil. We are not utilitarian philosophers deciding what's best for the the largest amount is, is our choice. No. We cannot judge between sins. We, we can recognize them, but we cannot say what is greater or what is lesser because we don't have God's perspective. We are fallen, sinful creatures. What may seem the lesser of two evils may turn out to be the greater of the two evils, and that is what we're going to see in this account as the book of Judges winds to its horrifying conclusion. The way this old man wanted to mitigate the vile wickedness that was about to occur actually made everything that much worse. This was unimaginable to him. It's unimaginable to us. We do not see the ramifications of sin. In fact, if we were to compare the magnitude of sins here, wouldn't the sin that brings discredit to God and his word be the greater? The actions of both Lot and this host are used by the enemy, by the opponents of God, as examples of the Bible's prejudice and mistreatment of women, or what is commonly now called support of the patriarchy. We are given a commandment in Exodus, the third commandment. We find it in Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So, brothers and sisters, this means more then we're not to speak blasphemously about the Lord or use his name wrongly. The verb here, the Hebrew verb to take, means to carry or lift up like a flag or a banner, a standard that that one may carry. And then in vain, the Hebrew word there means to make worthless or futile. And we as Christians, our very name, the very label placed upon us from the time of the early church is the name of our Lord. We carry his banner in the name that we proclaim ourselves to be. If we act or fail to act in a way that does not honor Christ, we have broken the third commandment. You don't have to say, you know, certain blasphemous phrases to break this. If you are not properly carrying his standard as a Christian, if you, in essence, throw the banner of the Lord's name into the mud, you have broken this commandment of God. So what do we do? What is our response to sin, to evil? This is our response. No. Period. This old man, this host, acted courageously in facing this depraved mob. His words to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly, were good and proper. He told them no. It was to remind, he, then he calls them my brothers. It was to, this was to remind them that they were fellow Israelites, people of the one true God, united to each other and to the Lord God through covenant and by God's law. 
He told them, do not act so wickedly. He was calling them to obedience to God's law, pointing out the grievous sin that they were committing and beseeching them to stop and turn from it. This is where his words to them should have ended, with this. His bargaining with them from this point on was evil, and it brought evil upon all of them. When evil threatens, it is our duty, our calling as Christians, especially us Christian men, to stand up to this evil, to this sin, to stand between evil and those we are called to protect, the women, the children, those weaker than us, and say, no, the Lord God forbids this, and so do I. There can be no bargaining or compromising with evil. The first part of verse 25, we read, But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. So the the mob's not turned from the the object of, of their lust by this promise of a young virgin and a concubine to do with what they will. What, uh, irony again, the old man says, do with them what you think is good. There was nothing good, friends, that they were going to do to anyone that came out of the house for them to have. The Levite, whose fate now seems to be sealed, takes matters into his own hand in a last-ditch attempt, an effort to do what? To save himself. He seizes his concubine and throws her out the door to the mob like a scrap of meat to a pack of ravenous dogs. Remember at the beginning in verse 3, we're told why he went after her to speak kindly to her heart. And then what did we see? We see... We saw that he ignores her from that point on. It's though she's not there. Then in offering her to the mob, here he reveals his true attitude towards her. He sees her as nothing more than an object of lust. In the second part of verse 25, we're told they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. So we're spared these harrowing details of this awful event. But the three graphic verbs that are in this part of this verse, they tell us all we need to know. They had sex with her, literally. They knew her. They abused her. They tortured her. And then discarded her. These truly are sons of Satan. God forbid, there are men like this in our world. And they act, we call them men, but they're acting like beasts, aren't they? They're not acting like men. They're not acting like image bearers of God. This is the sign of what we see. This is what's implied later in the New Testament when we read about the beast, the mark of the beast. This is man as an image bearer of God acting like a devil, like a beast. This is the contagion of sin 
in the world. Verse 26, And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was, until it was light. Now throughout this, there's a message that the writer is giving us. And we can see this in the way he describes the hours of the day in the account. Verse 9, we are told, when the day had waned towards evening. That's when the Levite decides to leave his father-in-law's house in Bethlehem. In verse 11, we're told, when the day was nearly over, it became clear then at that point that they would not make it home. They need to find a place to spend the night. Verse 14, we're told that this is when the Levite refused to spend the night in Jebus. This was as the sun went down on them. They reached the outskirts of Gibeah, a supposedly safe haven in Israel. Verse 16, at evening, the writer says. This is where the old man who will be their host invites them into his home. In verse 25, this is where the plot sinks to its deepest depravity with the young women being, one woman, excuse me, being raped and abused, as the writer says, all night until the morning. So the addition of until the morning might provide a glimmer of hope. The the sun is going to come up. The light is going to shine again. But it's a ruse. It's false hope. The new day dawns, but the horrors do not cease with the sunrise. The last part of verse 25, he tells us, as the dawn began to break, the mob discards her. The first part of verse 26, he says, As the morning appeared, the shattered victim returns to the host's home and collapses on the doorstep. The last part of verse 26, there she remains, as he says, until it was light. This is a message on the spiritual and moral state of Israel during this time of the judges. The the light of the knowledge of Yahweh had gone out in Israel. The night was coming. Darkness like night had come upon the people as they no longer did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. This brought the dawn of a new day when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But this new day is as horrific as the night that preceded it. And we see this in verses 27 and 28. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine laying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. The final episode begins with a Levite called here, notice this, her master or Lord, Adonai. He was once called her husband back in verse 3 as he set out to speak kindly to her heart. And he starts the day, notice it in a cold and calculating manner. He rose up, he opened the doors, he went out to go on his, his way. He's not going to look for her. He seized her the night before and threw her to a mob that was intent on rape. And there's no concern for her whatsoever. He's just going to go home. He's 
going to leave without her. He abandoned her. Well, she is dead. And there's no one, no, not one, to speak for her. The description of her death scene I find heartbreaking. Lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold, reaching out for help to her husband, who is not a husband. Without the strength to open the door herself, or even to knock, she dies alone at the threshold of false security. It's clear now that the Levite is no true husband to the concubine. He is not hers by either affection or obligation. His relationship with her now is defined by our writer as master. He owns her and rules her. And he takes her home because she is his property. Nothing more in his mind. And because dead or alive, she still he still has some use for her. At least what's left of her. And we are about to see what this use is. And here, after all of this heart talk that we've gone through, it is revealed to us the Levite is heartless. The last two verses of chapter 19. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all, and all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day of the people that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. What the Levite does here is cold and calculating. He had plenty of time to think about this on the way home and plan out when he, what he's going to do. And when he gets home, we're told he seizes her. Now, this is the third time this poor young woman has been seized. She was seized by the Levite, the man that was, to, was supposedly her husband, but was just her owner, who should have protected her. He seized her and threw her to the murderers who seized her and did what they chose to do to her. And then he gets her home and he seizes her again. The violence being done to this young woman does not end with her death. And actually, the, the, test, the text is ambiguous as to whether she is alive or dead at this point. This question usually comes up because people say, I, I can't tell if she's alive or dead. No, the writer doesn't tell us. He keeps that hidden. There's, there's no way to tell in the text. He is purposely vague about it at this point. So she is completely stripped of her personhood now. She's not even given the dignity of a burial, which is required by law, by Levitical law, that the the deceased must be buried within a very short time frame. 
She's not treated as a person. He treats her as an animal. And this is the second time in the book of Judges that a young woman is sacrificed, as we said. Sacrificed by the one who she should trust, be able to trust, the one who should protect her. This anonymous Levite, he represents all Levites, as I explained when we began this account with the anonymous nature of the characters. They're, we're not given their names because we're not talking about the Lord is not giving us a message about this one man. He's giving us a message about many. He's giving us a message about all the Levites, the religious leaders and servants of Israel. This man, like them, serves no one but himself. Like them, he protects none but his own interests. He leads others only into internal strife and a war of brother against brother. He, this Levite, is a prophecy of Israel's religious leaders to come at the time of the Lord's first coming. The men that turn him over, that betray him, that have him demand that he be executed. The gruesome actions of the Levite here, though, are that of a demented judge. Remember, we're in the book of Judges. It's about the judges of Israel. Judges were recognized as anointed by Yahweh when they demonstrated the ability to summon the tribes of Israel against an enemy threat. Anointed by the Lord. The Lord is absent in this account. This Levite is not anointed by the Lord. Yet he summons Israel as a judge. And he does it in this macabre and hideous way by cutting up this young woman and sending her body parts to each of the tribes to turn the 11 tribes against the one tribe, Benjamin, their brothers in Israel. He's not calling them, like all the other judges, against an external threat that's threatening them. No, he's sounding the trumpet, so to speak, for civil war. And we come to the height of irony in this. The Levite avoided the Canaanite city of Jebus out of fear for his safety. His fellow Israels in Gibeah of Benjamin turn out to be a greater threat to them. He acts as a judge to summon the 11 other tribes against this one, sending them evidence of brutality and depravity within Israel. But he does it in a way that, it, that itself is brutal and depraved. Rather than saving Israel, what he does almost destroys Israel. This is a call to arms. But why does he do it this way? This is so very, very odd. Where did he get this idea? Well, there's historical precedent to this. Several centuries before this actually occurred, there was this empire. It's called the Mari Empire. It was in northern Mesopotamia. We've talked about this in the Wednesday Night Genesis study. There's these things called the Mare letters, which are cuneiform tablets, thousands and thousands of them. And through this, uh, uh, scholars have been able to determine much of the culture and the government functions in this ancient time in the, in the ancient Near East. And so they, they deciphered this one. And this royal official is writing to his king, the Mare king. And in it, he says this, a prisoner in jail should be killed, his body dismembered and transported to the area between the villages in order that the people would fear and gather quickly. And I could carry out the campaign quickly. Now, this could have been a well-known thing in that area. 
at this time. This could have been done in other ways by pagan kings. I will make sure the people follow me. Give me someone to cut up. And they, they don't want to be like him. They're going, to, they're going to come out on this military campaign. What are we seeing here is the complete paganization of Israel. And then verse 30 ends with this odd statement. And our translations punctuate it as though this is a proclamation of the people of Israel. But, but Daniel Block, in his commentary on Judges, he suggests that its, its form of this, this last statement has the appearance of a, of a call to action by the writer to his immediate readers. And that a better translation, other than consider it, Block says, should be, think about her. And I think this makes better sense. The author is reestablishing the young, per, young woman's personhood here. He's calling all of Israel to recognize her as their sister. And poignantly, the literal Hebrew phrase, of think about her, is an abbreviated form of the Hebrew idiom, set your hearts on her. We have heart language, again, that closes out the tragic story of this young woman. We started out hearing that the Levite was going to speak to her heart. We encountered this heart language time and time again till we realized the Levite is heartless. He has no heart. And we end with a call to set our hearts on her. Let her not be forgotten is the cry of the author. What good does that do, one might ask? That's about as meaningful as sending good thoughts to someone. So I remember her. So what? But this, brothers and sisters, is more than remembrance. It's a call to repentance is what it is. To repent from going our own way, from doing our own thing, being our own Lord and Master, doing what is right in our own eyes. When we set our hearts on the unloved and unprotected young woman, we should consider another unloved and unprotected young woman in God's story to come. As we'll read later in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, there's another unloved, unprotected woman spurned and alone at a well in Samaria when a Jewish stranger asks her for a drink of water. Then he offers her living water and proceeds, as she says later, to tell her all that she ever did. And John tells us in verses 25 and 26 of chapter 4, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. John turns aside to his audience here, and he says, he who is called Christ, because John's writing to a lot of Greeks who don't, may not know the Messiah. I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He reveals his messianic identity, which he has taken great pains with his disciples to keep secret. He goes out of his way in his journey, goes to a place that no Jew would go to, and he takes a special side trip to this well in Samaria to talk to this woman. He's there for that specific reason. And to this woman, this a neglected woman who's had, oh, such a hard life, he reveals to her that he is the one. He gives her hope. Those who are alone 
spurned, mistreated, cast aside, or not forgotten by the Lord. Perhaps you feel this way. We all have at times felt forgotten. These accounts that we read here in Judges and in John assure us that this is not so. We are not forgotten. Otherwise, how do we understand this this weird and troubling story about the murder of a young woman? It would make no sense. Ancient Jewish rabbis, without the illumination of the New Testament, interpreted this in this way. And this is I touched. I said I said at ten a.m. that we're going to talk about how how the, we need the whole Bible um, in the sermon. Uh, and this is it. They interpreted it as a political polemic against the monarchy of Saul. Saul was from this town, Gibeah in Benjamin, the home of the wicked mob, the worthless fellows, compared to David from Bethlehem of Judah, the home of the hospitable father-in-law, where the journey was coming from. This, in their account, is about the righteousness of the southern kingdom of Judah after the divide of the kingdoms versus the wickedness of the northern kingdom of Israel called eponymously Ephraim, the tribe of the host that, that offers up the girls, and of the Levite. There's no reassurance in that interpretation. It's like, what sort of God would cause this to happen to give me a lesson in politics? I find that very unsatisfying to be to be very mild about it. They do not have, these rabbis did not have the New Testament. <clears throat> Many Christians think they can go to Jewish people for an interpretation of the Old Testament. Friends, you cannot. They do not have the New Testament. If you do not understand the New Testament, the Old Testament is hidden to you. It is veiled. You can see a surface meaning, but it does not reveal the true underlying message of God. So God tells us, he reassures us, when the light seems to be fading and the day grows dark, his heart is set on this young woman and all like her. And we really are all like her. She's not forgotten by God. You are not forgotten by God. He will deliver us. He will rescue us. He is doing this now. All will be set right, is the message. This hideous crime will be set right. It has been set right to a great extent in a realm beyond our vision and our understanding, our experience at this time. Join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Thank you for what you revealed to us, Father. I pray that this message may be meaningful, Father. This is difficult, a difficult topic, a difficult account to deal with, Father. I pray that it, that it means something to us. You told us about this horrific, horrible experience this poor young woman suffered. You told us about this for a reason. Father, we grieve over the sin that causes such evil that causes such hurt and injury and death in our society. We turn to you, we turn to the Lord Jesus 
for healing, for the balm that we need on our spirit, our souls. Father, may may this be useful to your people. Father, bless the remainder of this day. Bless us as we go about our day and, and bring us back safely here this evening, if that is your will. We give you thanks. We praise and honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.